0: Well, do you like change, or do you fear it? It's September, so that question really doesn't matter. You are probably experiencing change. Now kids know this, right? Some of you are in a new school, some of you have a new teacher. You know when I was a kid, the thought of September coming, standing out there, even if it was July, I knew it was coming, and I knew my life wouldn't be the same afterwards. And it filled me with a sense of dread. Of course, sometimes change is like that. You know it's coming. And you know that things will be a watershed moment. That will you, life will never be the same. You can't go back to it. Other times, change comes rather slowly and subtly, imperceptibly. You may not know this about myself, but uh, when I was a kid, I used to have a pretty thick Philly accent. Um... Thicker than, now than, uh, than, I, uh, than I do now. Uh, I used to say things like, Wooder, which is water. <laughs> Where the football team was not the Eagles, it was the Eagles. And I didn't know that I had changed, but living elsewhere around the country for uh, probably 10 years before I came back home and realized, I no longer said those things. I had changed. With the gospel, we know that change comes. And change can be dramatic. And we see in this passage an illustration of that. Change coming and disrupting life. But the truth is, something else we see in this passage, that we are actually constantly changing. Whether we're reacting to something or not, whether that impulse is is coming or not, we are constantly in the midst of change. It is a lie to think that we're standing in some neutral position, whether to go up the stairs or down the stairs. No. We're on an escalator. We're on the move. And the question comes for us, and when the gospel arrives, will it make any difference? And with that thought, we um, want to see what this passage has to say. So let's turn to it. But before we do, let's ask God to bless our reading of it. Father, we ask that you uh, use this word powerfully in our lives. Uh, I pray that it might uh, make a difference, that um, it might transform us, and that it might work its fruit uh, in our hearts. Uh, bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the whole scheme of 1 Samuel, chapter 25 is a bit of a breather. We have, for about nine chapters, seen the same theme. King Saul pursuing David. Here, this king, with all of his resources and all of his power, is trying to chase uh, poor little David all across the countryside. And in the midst of it, Saul is becoming more faithless, He's becoming irrational, he even becomes paranoid. David, on the other hand, has remained faithful and righteous. Even while he's in being pursued, he still seems to be following God. He knows that God has promised that he will be the next king. And yet, time after time, he's stayed his hand from taking that in his own power. In the last chapter, we saw he was approaching Saul to kill him and then ascend to the throne, but he held back, trusting in God. But now 25 changes a bit. We are introduced to a new figure. And even before we get his name, we get a description of him. We're introduced to him. And it strikes me as a strange introduction. I don't know how you like to be introduced. I mean, some of you probably prefer your name. Maybe your job title. Perhaps where you're from. But how would you like it if I introduced you to someone you'd never met before by listing all of your possessions? What would it say about you? What would it be communicating about you? Well, that's exactly what the narrator does to Nabal. Before we even get his name, we get all of his possessions. He owns a huge business. And that he owns uh, many, many sheep and goats and, and men working for him. And all of these possessions work to describe who he really is. Nabal is defined by the things he owns. He's defined by his possessions. And our story backs that up. When we get to learn a little bit more about him, we see he's greedy. He has this huge amount of livestock out there in the countryside. And then we see David asking him a favor. He says, peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all you have. I have proven my worth to you. Now would you please do something nice for me? It's a holiday season. Will you just give me some of your provisions? You see, David had gotten his men to protect the sheep and the shepherds out in the, in the fields. Even though he didn't have any relationship with Nabal, he took it upon himself to do this. Nabal turns him down. In fact, he sounds like a spoiled brat when he turns him down. In verse 11, he says, Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat? And give it to someone else? My, my, my. Nabal is the guy you love to hate. Right? He's Ebenezer Scrooge. He's got all the money. He's the rich guy. He lives in Carmel. Carmel's name means garden. David's poor. He's introduced in chapter 1 as being in the countryside, in the wilderness. He's the one on the run asking very nicely for just some scraps. Nabal rejects him. In fact, he says in verse 10, Who is David? And he doesn't really care for the answer. he's, He's not saying, please tell me more about this man. He's saying, why should I waste my time with this guy? He is beneath me. Even Nabal's name tells us what we're supposed to think about him. Now, the the name Nabal in Hebrew is a synonym for lots of different words. Uh, Some are positive, but one of them is fool. And so we look at Nabal, and we're we're to think he is a fool. We want to root against him. And so it's with some satisfaction that we see David is not going to suffer any fools when he gets this insult. He straps on his sword and he gets his 400 men to strap on their sword and he goes after him, doing exactly what we want. When people insult us, when people are greedy and selfish, we want them to pay. We want some comeuppance. We want to say comeuppance. (laughs) It just feels right. Listen to how David puts it in verse 21. Surely in vain I have guarded all this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing, uh, that was, uh, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he, he has returned me evil for good. God help me if I don't wipe out all of him and all of his men. In other words, it would be wrong of me not to just teach this guy a lesson. I would be in the wrong if I didn't act righteously and eliminate him. And so David and his men start their approach. And as they start their approach, Abigail, Nabal's wife, intercedes. She's heard about the attack. She's heard about the offense. And what she does next is amazing. She leaps into action. She tries to intervene. She, she gathers together a peace offering and brings it before David. Abigail's contrast with her husband is striking. Nabal's there saying, Mine, mine, mine. Abigail, her first words are actually self referential. She says, Me, but listen to how she says it. On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. What an amazing woman. She knows her husband's a fool. She calls him a worthless fellow. But she puts herself in harm's way in order to protect him. And she's not falsely pious here. The way she rationalizes it and the way she explains it to to, uh, David is, I know he's a fool. And your men came and I didn't respond. I wasn't there to cover over his mistakes, to protect him from his own folly. He's over there. He doesn't even realize that his life is about to be lost because of what he did. And so I should have been there. And so I'm here now, putting myself in his place. And we could spend the rest of this time talking about how Abigail is this amazing figure of Christ how she is interceding for her husband, how she's paying for his sins, how she's rescuing him from the point of death. But that would not be the point of this story. Well, that's not the point of this chapter. We might think that Abigail is saving Nabal, but what she's really doing here is saving David. Her actions are a powerful message From God to David, to stop him in his tracks, to prevent him from a wickedness that he is about to commit. And if you've been cheering for David up until this time, looking for him to to do that vigilante justice, then it's a warning to you, too. In all that's going on here, it's so easy to overlook David's responsibility. Because David's a likable guy, right? We want to be like David. He slew Goliath. He's the one that, that acted righteously and humbly, and we love everything about his story, being the runt and, and coming into great power and, and really allowing God to, walk, uh, to, to do this in, in God's power and timing. Enables it a despicable guy. We want him to be out of the picture. He's a fool. And with all those things going on, it's easy to give David a pass. It's easy to to overlook or downplay his shady behavior. But Abigail sees. Abigail sees and she understands. And so she flings herself into the conflict to wake David up. And to wake us up in our self-righteousness. Wake us up to the spiritual reality of all that's going on here. This passage teaches us so much about sin. It teaches us so much about the gospel. It teaches us that the gospel intervenes. That's its nature. It is disruptive. And to know that you have the gospel in your life is to feel that disruption. Not that it was just one disruption a time in your life when you became a Christian. But to have the gospel in your life is to feel that disruption coming. It may come in many forms that that don't look like messages from God. But they're coming whenever we feel anger or anxiety. Whenever fear is there. It comes disruptively. And so I want to look at this intervention of the gospel. I want to look more closely at it here in this passage. Let's look at how it operates. First, gospel intervention points out that the real problems in our life are not external. Our real problems in our life is not those things out there, however dire they might be. But the real problem is in here. It's with us. Because the gospel doesn't come to promise to change your spouse. It doesn't come to promise to fix your job and to make it easier. It doesn't come to smooth over those relationships that are awkward, or to clear traffic when you're in a rush. The truth is always that it has come to change you. And that's hard when all those things out there seem so blatantly wrong. (laughs) You know, it's easy to accept the fact that the gospel is to change us when everything else out there is okay, and I'm clearly in the wrong, then I get it. And I say, yeah, it's me. I need change. But it's a hard message to hear when all those things are really bad out there. When there is injustice, when people are insulting and mean to you, when things are uncomfortable or scary, it's easy to say, God, change those things. Owning your sin is hard. Part of Abigail's genius in her approach is that she marginalizes Nabal. Did you see what she does here? She even encourages encourages David to marginalize Nabal. She says in in verse twenty five, "Let not my lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name is, so he is." Now that might sound harsh from the guy's wife. But it's essential for what she wants to do in intervening in David's life here. It's not just to protect uh, Nabal, her husband. It's to show and to protect and to rescue David. Because once Nabal is out of the picture, all we are is left to view David and his wicked actions here. And the temptation he has into sin. If the arrogance and folly of Nabal's personality is put to the side things start to get really uncomfortable with David. He is about to murder Nabal and all of Nabal's men because he was insulted. Sometimes we read Old Testament narratives and we just think, ah, oh, it's a violent time back there. It was the wild, wild west. Everybody was sort of just getting insulted and flinging out their gun and shooting the, the bad guys. And it just all worked out. no. That was sin. David would have been blood guilty. And that's exactly what Abigail points out to him. You are blind, David. He was not being able to see the sin that was under the surface. Abigail is preventing David from blood guilt, basically spending the rest of his life dealing with this rash impulse. And if David was continued to be godly and and following after the Lord, this would haunt him throughout his life. Abigail's gospel intervention is so important. And this point about it pointing inwardly and not to externals is essential for understanding Christianity because so often what we see is actually self-righteous imitations. When the church stumbles at this same point that David stumbles at. We have the truth, but what do we do with the truth? We don't see the truth and point it to our own hearts. We see it as a weapon to make ourselves feel superior to others, to exclude people, to expose, to say we're on the right side and you are on the wrong side. We see faults all around us. You hear a sermon, and you're like, wow, I wish so-and-so would hear this sermon. They really need it. What happens when you get frustrated? When things offend you? When external forces make you angry? How do you react? Do you seek to control those things? Do you want to sit in God's seat? and have power over those things? The question isn't whether Nabal should be punished or not. The question is, is it your role to punish him? Is it your responsibility to bring justice and judgment? Christ didn't come in his work on the cross to condemn all those external things and to make your life peaceful and happy. He comes to challenge you. It comes for us to look at ourselves in our frustration, in our offense, in our anger. It comes to expose those things that need the work of the cross. And so that's the very first point of gospel intervention, that it comes directly to us and clearly points to us as our own need. Secondly, gospel intervention gives us a greater understanding of the danger of sin itself it 's so easy to, to be tempted back into this idea that that sins are mistakes. You know we understand we 've sinned. we know we 'll sin again. The best we hope for is that we can just learn from our mistakes, but why dwell on it can 't we just move on i 'm ashamed of what I did, I know it was wrong. Let's just plow on to the next thing. It's no use crying over spilled milk. But sin is not just a one-off act. It is formative. It shapes you. It changes you. I was at the dentist a few weeks ago, and I'm looking at this chart of tooth decay. Do <laughs> you know this chart? It's frightening. The tooth starts out really nice, and then there's like a little build-up, it's okay, and the next stage, it's a little worse, and then it's bad. And that's it's oh, horrible. And then it's like scary, you want to get out of that chair and just run for the hills, that tooth is haunting you. So subtly, sin, If it's just left as that's one-off act, not a big deal, move on. We don't see that it's formative. It changes us. David is in danger of not just committing a violent crime, but of becoming a violent person. He is in danger of becoming one who takes vengeance into his own hands. I mean, that's dangerous for anybody. But David is on the precipice of, become, of having absolute power. He's on the precipice of becoming king, which means he is about to become a tyrant. And if we've been following 1 Samuel, we know what that means. It should scare us and it should frighten David, because this narrative is artfully showing that David is in danger of becoming Saul. Sin is formative. Saul started out well, but his, his insecurities and his fears slowly drive him to abandon God and, result, and resort to violence constantly. He is a tyrant. David is also not just becoming Saul, he's becoming Nabal. He's becoming a fool. But yes, Nabal was unjust. Yes, he's repaying evil for good. But now David is becoming Nabal. He's acting out of all proportion to justice. An eye for an eye in the Old Testament wasn't saying you need to go exact punishment. It was trying to limit you so that if somebody plucks out your eye, you don't kill them. It was saying, no, you're limited to only taking an eye. Don't go after limbs and stuff. An aspect This is an aspect of sin we need to pay more attention to. Sin is formative. It changes us. It's a picture we get in in Romans 1. As Paul's trying to describe sin, he's saying that God has designed you for this this dignity and this role of being images of God. But you, in turn, have sought after being images of animals and birds. And what eventually happens is you start to act like animals. It's transforming you. It's subtle. It's subtle. It's a very interesting article I read a a while back, but it demonstrates how the brain actually changes physically upon stimulation. The neural pathways change in stimulation. The article described how pornography, for example, wasn't just this harmless vice that you fall into, but actually alters our physiology. It transforms us in the way we think, in the patterns of our thought. So that the more you give in to that stimulation, the more your brain thinks in a different way. You're becoming a different person. The same is true with materialism. With judgmentalism. And sometimes we think, well, these are nice little coping mechanisms. Come on, just give me a break. I eat. Maybe a lot. I shop. Maybe I tear down others. but..." It's because I'm feeling bad right now. And we have this view that maybe it's a catharsis, that somehow if we just don't sin, it's going to be pent up somehow, and, and we need to get a release here, a catharsis. Well, actually, Scripture says no. This isn't a release, it's layering on, it's a calcification, it's hardening of your heart. Sin will harden your heart as we continually give ourselves over to it. Abigail's gospel intervention here saves David, not just from one regrettable act, but from what he's becoming. It's an episode that's very similar to a later episode in David's life, after he becomes king. 2 Samuel 11 tells of this affair with Bathsheba. And then as he falls in this affair with this woman. He also arranges to have her husband killed. Nathan, the prophet, confronts him. But Nathan confronts him after this sin is already committed. And what we see is that David has had this sustained pattern of acquiring women. In fact, it's at the very end of this chapter. Chapter 25, a piece not put in your bulletin, but... Uh, David then takes Abigail as as his wife, and then very subtly it says, and then he takes his servant as his wife. David will begin this pattern of accumulating women, unchecked. And it becomes an issue for the monarchy as he runs into all these problems in his offspring. And even Solomon, it becomes a, a sin that's passed down to him as Solomon accumulates wives for himself, and it and the, the, this is not something that the Scripture treats lightly. If we follow the narrative of how First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings go, this is often the sin that begins to wreak havoc in the kingdom, sending Israel into exile. And the question for us is: as we confront our sin, do you see what you're becoming? Do you see how it's forming you? And this is true whether you acknowledge it or not. You are being changed. You are being moved in a direction. Either you're moving away from God, or the gospel intervention is bringing you back to him. The gospel calls us to change. But let's be clear about this. You cannot change yourself. You're either heading still on the path away from God, or when the gospel comes, you surrender. You go to God and you say, Change me. You ask him to work transformation into your life. You surrender to the gospel and his plan for you. What kind of person do you want to be? Finally, gospel intervention doesn't just bring the bad news of our sin. It doesn't just tell us that it's about us and, and that it's about what we're becoming. It also tells us the good news. Having give, David given a, a glimpse of his sin and who he's becoming, Abigail, now puts before David's eyes this amazing picture of God's future for him. She encourages him to walk by faith and not by sight, to turn away from this impulse to exact justice right now and to trust God's plan for him. Turn back, David, to the promises you know are true. Turn back to who God is making you into. She gives David this gift, and she says, For the Lord will certainly make you a sure house. God will take care of your enemies, for God has appointed you prince over Israel. In other words, stop squabbling with petty Nabal, this worthless fellow, and open your eyes to who you are. Do you see? Do you see what the gospel means for your life? The blessings that God intends for you. It's the same counsel that, that Paul gives to the church at Rome. In Romans 6, he says to them, slave has act, sin has acted like a slave master over you. It has dominated you. Christ has now died for your sins, which means you are dead to sin. You're free. So stop sinning. Stop acting like it. Match your behavior to who you are. God has made you holy. And that never gets taken away. That is a righteous declaration that's yours at the moment you turn to Christ. You are completely forgiven of all your sins. You are holy. Now the question is, are you going to live as if that's true? Or are you going to live ignoring it, continuing to turn your members over to sin and allowing them to have their way with you. God has offered all of this to you in Christ. Don't you know? Don't you know that, that the promises he has for you are far more regal than the throne that David would sit on? For you are son and daughter of the King. That is who he's made you into. That's the life he calls you to live here. And the spiritual battle we face is as we stand at the crossroads of temptation. Do we believe in this faithfulness? That faithfulness itself will satisfy you deeply? David's confronted with this. Should I find satisfaction in my vigilante justice? Or should I withhold my hand for the promises that God has for me? That is a moment of temptation. And oftentimes we think, ah, maybe if I just give in and just trust that the gospel promises will still be there, it'll be okay. You know, sin and, and ask for forgiveness later. And we sort of feel like we're missing out. That that if we avoid sin, it's actually painful and hard. We want to say with uh, St. Augustine, Lord, give me chastity, but not yet. But the truth is, if we really pay attention to this narrative, what we see here is Saul, when he gives into this sin, actually, he loses everything. He gives into the sin of trying to control his power, and what does he lose? All his advisors leave him? He winds up losing the throne, and his children abandon him. When Nabal tries to keep all of his possessions for himself, not giving David a thing, not giving David one small thing, what happens? All of his possessions actually go to David, including his wife. You see, we might think that giving in to sin, if we don't give in to sin, we miss out on something. This passage shows us the emptiness of what those things offer and the fullness of the life that God has for you. David is at a crossroads. He can become like Saul and Nabal or he can walk faithfully in the promises of God, trusting the future that he has for him. What's God's future for you? Do you know it? If you're in Christ, then the future looks far brighter than anything you've been putting in your face and saying, this is my immediate need now. For he has given you promises that go far past what anything in the world can offer. Has the gospel intervened in your life? If it has, then it tells you that right now you are far more loved and accepted than you can possibly imagine. You have everything you need right now. You have dignity and flourishing that cannot be found elsewhere. It's the message that David needed to be confronted with. And when, he be, when he's confronted with it, he changes. Will you be like it? Will you respond to this gospel intervention? Or will you follow the foolish path to give in to your desires? The, the question is before you. The gospel is before you as an invitation. Will you follow? Let's pray.